WERUFM.org. The Times 1001, and you are tuned to WERUFM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, Catherine Schmidt, is up next. In the first 20 minutes, is pre recorded. No phone calls will be taken at that time, but later they will be back with you live. This is Catherine Schmidt from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Please note that this show has been pre-recorded, and so we will not be taking phone calls today. This morning, our show is about salt marshes. My guests are Misha Mitar and Jeremy Gabrielson from Maine Coast Heritage Trust and Joseph Kelly from the University of Maine. During his campaign, President Donald Trump promised to drain the swamp of Washington, removing government-controlling lobbyists and career politicians from public offices. In comparing our nation's capital to a swamp in need of human improvement, Trump repeated a tired metaphor of wetlands as negative spaces. But we now know that wetlands, especially salt marshes, are among the most productive and valuable ecosystems on Earth. So why does the negative association persist? Perhaps it's because salt marshes are no longer part of everyday life as they once were in the past. In New England, the native Wabanaki people went to salt marshes to hunt, fish, and collect basket fiber. European colonists settled near marshes to take advantage of salt hay for livestock. But sometime in the intervening centuries, marshes, swamps, bogs, sloughs, and other watery lands came to be viewed by many as dangerous, worthless places to be feared and avoided. Later generations ditched, dredged, drained, filled, paved, and otherwise destroyed more than half of America's salt marshes, swamps, and other wetlands. Today, we continue to lose salt marshes, and many people perpetuate negative associations, viewing salt marshes and swamps as stinky places, in-between spaces, muddy and grassy and buggy. But many other people, recognizing the value of wetlands and the price we have paid for their destruction, have come to the marsh's defense. Scientists have shown that dense meadows of grasses, rushes, and sedges are as productive as agricultural cropland and store 10 times more carbon than a tropical forest. A lot of the action is below ground, where microscopic bacteria, fungi, and algae break down the nutritious grasses. The marsh oozes white and purple with their froth, smells of sulfur from the chemical reactions occurring in their wake. Crabs, shrimp, clams, and worms feed on the detritus. Fish, too, come in to eat, Winter flounder, striped bass, eel, and herring chase minnows, swimming onto the marsh surface during flood. The marsh is flush with birdsong. Salt marshes act like a filter, helping to clean coastal waters. They absorb the energy of storm surges and floods, protecting property. Thousands of salt marshes cover about 20% of Maine's coastline. Maine has more salt marsh area than any other New England state. The large, extensive marshes are all south of Penobscot Bay, but there are more individual marshes in eastern Maine. Rock is the distinguishing feature here, so marsh fills in along the edges, forming fringes and pockets around coves and bays. Eastern Maine marshes are younger, with less peat, as they are still developing over the marine silt and clay deposited at the end of the last ice age. Marshes exist in the narrow space between low and high tides. They developed over hundreds of years of slowly rising sea levels. 
With the rate of sea level rise accelerating, salt marshes could disappear within decades. One way to prevent marsh loss is to make sure they have room to migrate or spread inland as the high tide rises higher. To understand what this might look like, I went out to Mount Desert Island's Northeast Creek on a warm day last November. Northeast Creek begins as freshwater, a burbling brook flowing through the Peggy Rockefeller Farm on the north side of the island in Bar Harbor. As it meanders north and west toward Frenchman Bay, the creek broadens into vast fields of cattails. Fraying brown seed heads almost conceal a couple of deer hiding in the marsh. They stare at me with their big, dark eyes, their ears alert. The cattails turn to boggy scrub and then marsh. The saltiest side of Northeast Creek is near its downstream end, which flows under busy Route 3. The bridge restricts tidal flows somewhat, but enough of the tide gets in to allow for the growth of salt-loving plants, cordgrass, and bulrushes. Acadia National Park owns 90% of this marsh, but not the adjacent upland, which is the focus of land conservation specialists. My guides for the day are Misha Maitar and Jeremy Gabrielson of Maine Coast Heritage Trust. We put the canoe in at the boat launch. So... We paddle south and west, with the tide, but against the current. Today, most of Northeast Creek is tidal freshwater marsh, but in the future, it will be saltier. As rising sea levels raise the tide, the salt marsh plants creep up into coastal forests and bogs as the seaward edge of the marsh sloughs off into the water. Maitar and Gabrielson pay attention to areas that com- can accommodate this shift. They look at topography, elevation, soil type. Gabrielson described their approach. Statewide on land protection with a, a wide range of partners, um, with local land trusts, with the park, uh, with the state um, on trying to conserve land. And so we're looking at working on land protection for marsh migration where it makes the most sense, where it's most likely to be successful to support marsh migration with those same partners that that we work with on other land protection projects. Northeast Creek and Bass Harbor Marsh are two really significant estuaries on Mount Third Island. And we've been involved in partnership with the Park Service on quite a bit of conservation in Bass Harbor Marsh as well. And I'll show you the map that depicts some of the salt marsh migration opportunities that we think are there. But for for the most part, most of those properties have been conserved in the past. And so right now we've been focusing more on Northeast Creek. And, And generally, as you look along the coast, you tend to find more broad, expansive salt marshes in more in southern Maine. And as you get into, uh, as you get east of Penobscot Bay, these sort of broader marsh complexes like this become more rare. There's there's a couple of them on Mount Desert Island, and there's a cluster of them around Pleasant Bay and in Washington County, um, and a few around Machias Bay. But, but generally, they're more rare on the landscape, and so that make that also adds significance because we we think that having this large area of, of existing marsh is likely to mean that this marsh system will be more resilient 
and we just have fewer of them in Eastern Maine. Hopefully we won't run out of water. <laughs> Get a little bit further. job is, is working with folks at the state and our, our project managers to try and find the marshes that are most likely to be resilient uh, to sea level rise. And um, a number of the things that we look at when we're looking at that, you know, we don't know what the rate of sea level rise is going to be. But one of the things we look at is for areas like this one right here, <laughs> where there is existing salt marsh um, vegetation. So that means, you know, we know that there are plants here that are going to generate seeds and that those seeds and plants um, are, are present here, they're surviving here, they're doing well here. Um, they're also able to accrete soil so the level of the marsh slowly builds over time and hopefully that process will continue even as sea levels rise. The other thing that we're looking for is topography like this where uh, there's areas adjacent to the marsh that are low enough that, and not steep enough that um, the marsh has a chance to move up that slope. Uh, and then the other thing that we're looking for is places like this where there is that undeveloped buffer because when there's soil hardening, uh, it's less likely for the marsh plants to be able to move. And also, if there's homes and roads, the assumption is that people are going to try and protect their investment in homes and roads. It's a very simple assumption. Um, but where there's these undeveloped buffers um, with the right topography around marshes, that's where we've got a best, our best chance to use um, land protection conservation tools to support marsh migration. We keep paddling up Northeast Creek, flushing a group of mallards in front of us. They finally gotten used to us. The creek splits. We take the south branch. Mytar has told me to look for the cranberries to know when the salt levels come down. She says that locals come out in droves to pick these cranberries. The peak has passed, but there are plenty still ripe for the picking. You go. We're, we're starting to get beyond where the salt water, the, tide, the water that's coming in with the tide is having influence on the plants. Because we see cranberries. Yeah, and, and a shift in other species. Oh yeah, I see them coming so in along the edges. the cranberries, yep, starting to just hang out, calling to us. But we're probably only, you know, we're probably within a couple of vertical inches of the highest annual tide here now. So with sea level, we'll ex we expect that these areas that we're just coming into where there are cranberries, well, the vegetation will shift. Um, and we'll see, right in here, we'll see fewer cranberries and, and more of the um, salt marsh type plants. We pull the canoe over and get out onto the marsh. We're walking through cranberries. Stopping to pick them and eat them. There's not a lot of elevation change. We walk away from the creek edge, picking cranberries as we go. 
Mitar notes how easy it is to imagine how expansive areas could be flooded with higher high tides. We stop and look at the map prepared by Maine Coast Heritage Trust for their marsh project. Blue shading shows the extent of salt marshes in 2010. Purple lines depict the high tide line if sea levels were to rise two feet, which scientists predict they might by 2050. Between the blue and purple are lands that could become new salt marsh as long as roads and other barriers don't get in the way. These barriers are shown in red. On the map, the changes look small, but standing on the marsh, we can see the shift beneath our feet. So, yeah, and so as we're looking at sea level rise, for us, we, we work primarily in, in coastal areas, and marshes are very dynamic ecosystems. They're ones that are likely to be potentially negatively impacted by sea level rise, but if we can um, support conservation in the right places, we can help mitigate some of that negative impact. Um, they're, also, they're also rare. Uh, they, there's only about 22,000 acres of salt marsh in Maine right now. Um, so for the amount of ecosystem services that they provide, you know, in terms of buffering from storms, in terms of serving as nursery habitat for commercially important fish species and, and other biodiversity, um, they're really a very small part of the landscape. And with sea level rise, we stand to lose a significant portion of our, our marshes and mains. You're listening to WERU Community Radio and Coastal Conversations. This show has been pre-recorded. Having seen the slow inland creep of the salt marsh at Northeast Creek, I still had questions. What about other marshes that aren't protected? To get a sense of the overall status of Maine salt marshes, I went to see Joe Kelly, a professor in the School of Earth and Climate Sciences at the University of Maine. Kelly has studied marshes and other coastal environments all over the world and has been doing research in Maine marshes for more than 30 years. I asked him about marsh migration and the strategy to conserve uplands to allow the process to unfold. Migration's uh, important in many ways, in many areas, particularly down on the coastal plains south of New York City. Up here, the topography is is, is more exaggerated. It, 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 the land, the upland goes up much faster. There could be rocks. Um, the coastal plain is very, very flat, and it's just a continuation of the marsh. Small change in sea level translates into a very large change. But that would suggest that it is really important where there's space Yes, where there's space, to migrate and here. that's that's probably a place someone would like to have a house, and they probably they do have a house there, and they're noticing the backyards uh, becoming a marsh, maybe, um, or the last storm took out some of the lawn, and they're 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 seeing that you know things are changing, and you know they can move back on their property and just build a wall, and many many have. Uh, often very needlessly and often fruitful, fruitlessly because the marsh doesn't care. It'll, it'll just bypass the wall. It can. But in other times, it's stopped by it, and you end up with a wall where, you know, the tide never really goes out, as they used to say. It just goes up and down the wall, and there is no horizontal apparent movement. Um, Do you know of places where this migration is happening? I, I've Places that I've seen and then thought about it down in wells, uh, I've noticed it, I, well, a number of years ago now, probably in the late 80s, early 90s, they were putting condominiums uh, along the landward side of the Wells Reserve, and what is now the Wells Reserve, it wasn't then. Uh, and I remember going there, we were working on the marsh, and 
thinking, wow, this this is not a long-term solution here because, you know, they clearly didn't want the marsh to intrude on their land. They didn't build that close, and there is a buffer, but just a matter of time before the ocean, if it continues to rise, uh, moves through that buffer. Um, so certainly in, in the eastern and Gulf Coast of the United States, barriers built by people to, to define the edge of their property have and will continue to result in the loss, the permanent loss of, of salt marsh acreage. In Maine, it's probably less an issue, but perhaps, as you say, it's more critical because we have a lot less marsh, and the marsh really needs those, those gentle uh, slopes into uplands to, to grow. While Kelly has witnessed changes in salt marsh area, he has found that migration is very difficult to actually measure. Along with his colleague Dan Belknap, and graduate student Margot Mansfield, they studied Jones Marsh, which is just north of the Northeast Creek Marsh, also on Mount Desert Island. I mean, there's a salt marsh, but there's a freshwater bog, and with rising sea level, eventually, with enough sediment, the marsh, the salt marsh will come in at the expense of the bog. It's a slow motion sort of action. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It will happen with storms where storms will kill some of the, you know, you get a storm surge and some salt water kills some of the, um, the, the, the sphagnum uh, plants and eventually salt marsh comes in. But if you remember her study, her results were it's not happening really quickly. It's not happening really even measurably uh, unless we went out with stakes or something and really, you call it a tape measure, but it's it's not ma- measuring. I think it like happens... inches, centimeters, millimeters? Not measurable over over 50 years in some places. Uh, again, but the error on our measurement is large. These are remote sites. There weren't... To look at time series of air photos, you need to register each photo to another. You need a permanent position that is, exists in each photo, and there aren't any. There's no, there's no house. There's no, nothing that shows up. And so we, we had a real problem there. Um, we, we did it to a degree. Some of the older photos that were really large in the area, sure, we could register them. We couldn't see things while they were really low resolution. Um, my guess is it is changing. And you can see islands of freshwater bogs surrounded by salt marsh. So it, it just screams, I'm dynamic. Underneath the bog is all salt water, but the, the living surface of the bog is still fresh, and it, it doesn't seem to notice it. So it, it, it looks like it's ready to go. Again, I think it, it will change in quantum jumps, that there'll just be a big storm, and it will move 50 meters or something in, in one year. But that'll be as far as it'll move in maybe 100 years. And But we haven't, we haven't seen that, and it has not been observed. Uh, we tried. Uh, but two years in retrospect, I thought we'd see it really easily. It, it's just going to take a longer-term set of measurements to really uh, pick that out. Kelly promotes strategies that will allow marshes to migrate where they can, even if he hasn't yet figured out how to measure the process. It's the future for Maine salt marshes. I mean, if you ask me, it's conversion slowly, you know, not to rush it, not to let we don't have to enhance it. It's going to happen. But to let those areas become, because they're large and flat already. They're already, they have the proper gradient. The question is, do they have a proper amount of inorganic sediment mud to build up? And, of course, we don't know. But that's where all of our marshes, the big marshes in Scarborough and, and in other places, if you core down through them, you get to freshwater wetlands at the bottom. So that's the way they began. And I'd like to think that some of these will become next century's big salt marshes in Maine. It's clear that Joe Kelly appreciates salt marshes, 
After all, he spent the majority of his career studying them. But to the untrained eye and mind, salt marshes lack the charisma of coral reefs and tropical rainforests. This is according to Carlos Duarte, a global expert on seagrasses and other shallow marine habitats. He has documented that for all their ecological importance, seagrasses and salt marshes get disproportionately less attention from scientists, the media, and the public. I was lucky to have spent the early years of my career in salt marshes, first as an endangered species monitor for Massachusetts Audubon Society on Cape Cod, where I documented birds using marsh habitat. A few years later, I was a research assistant for the Plum Island Sound long-term ecological research site north of Boston. I studied marsh grasses. I measured their growth. I documented all the different plant species growing in the Plum Island Sound marshes. I helped out with other research projects, so I came to know all the different ways that salt marshes helped animals and also helped humans. In studying them, I came to know them, and I understood, without a doubt, how important they were and how valuable they were as habitat. To know a landscape, we have to encounter it and interact with it. To love a landscape, it has to be familiar. Perhaps negative associations with wetlands persist because it's not very easy to know them. In the case of salt marshes, they are muddy and buggy to walk across. There are trails that cross marshes, but more often they skirt the upland edge or the beachfront. A canoe or kayak is needed to go deep into the marsh, but tide and wind must cooperate. Those who do take the time to find and learn about their local salt marshes those who do take the time to find and learn about their local salt marsh to get out in it will be rewarded. The squeaky call of a willet out in the grass, the swirling patterns of salt hay licked by the tide, ripples of minnows in the shallows, uninterrupted views of the horizon, the crunch of cranberries where the marsh turns to bog. Like the steady creep of salt marsh into freshwater wetland, these rewards are beyond measure. I hope you'll take the time to find a salt marsh that you can experience and look for a list of places where you can experience the salt marsh on the Maine Sea Grant website, seagrant.umaine.edu. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations. You've been listening to a pre-recorded segment. We are now live in the studio at WERU. I'm your host, Katherine Schmidt, and I'll be continuing the focus on Maine salt marshes with two guests here today who I will ask to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Kate Ruskin. I'm a faculty member in the Ecology and Environmental Sciences program at the University of Maine, and I've been studying salt marshes, particularly in Maine, since 2011. And I'm Brian Olson. I'm a, a professor in the School of Biology and Ecology at the University of Maine and also one of the principal investigators of the uh, Salt Marsh Habitat and Avian Research Program. Great. Thank you. So I wonder if first either of you or both of you have reactions to the interviews that I did in November. I love that you frame um, this segment in marshes uh, in terms of what people think about them, you know, because it, it is in our language if you're bogged down at work or swamped. Those are bad things. I actually, um, for my PhD defense, I was accumulating um, clips of marshes portrayed in movies. They're all over the place. Lord of the Rings, Princess Bride. Uh, it's never good when they get into <laughs> marshes and wetlands. It, 
Um, and I think that uh, comes to bear on the way we even just use those words in our language. And so I love that you put it in terms of people often don't have a good time in marshes, and that affects how we see them and how we conserve them. Just because the music gets ugly every time you get in there. The background, it just sounds yeah. scary. Yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, the dead marshes in Lord of the Rings. There's zombies coming out. It, yeah, it's invariably pretty bad. <laughs> well, in marshes, a lot of times we're sort of the purgatory where people were sent or where people hid. I wonder what was the conclusion of your thesis? Oh, well, in the end, I had to spend more time on my actual thesis and <laughs> take all the clips together, but I did a lot of uh, preliminary work on it. Um, there were a couple a couple of clips where it was a little more positive, but all in all, I've spent so much time doing my fieldwork uh, on birds in tidal marshes, and I, I love it. I love that low tide smell because I have a lot of positive associations with it, and I agree with your point that if you commit the time to spending some time in, in salt marshes and get to know them, uh, it's very rewarding, but you kind of have to get past that initial smell and the bugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian, what about you? Do you have reactions to the recorded? Yeah, you know, I, I, some of those similar things as well. I mean, some of my, my bigger reactions that are out of uh, some of the research that our group has done is is responding to um, some of Joe's uh, uh measurability of marsh change and um, and I think he brings up a really good point in how these things don't have to be slow and continual but they can be on a large scale as well and so our group has uh, been studying marshes from not only Maine marshes but also marshes all the way as far south as Virginia and we have surveys of, of the birds and surveys of the plant communities in those marshes um, at, at a, about 2,000 different locations and we had been doing that coincidentally right before Hurricane Sandy came through uh, and um, hit the mid-Atlantic really hard and so um, we were able to then take those data and compare what those marshes looked like before Hurricane Sandy and then go back and, and um, uh, investigate them again after Hurricane Sandy. And we expected to see huge changes in the path of the hurricane and how the marshes had changed and the bird communities had changed and, and uh, fewer changes when we're looking in you know the Gulf of Maine region or down south in, in, in Virginia and the southern tip of the Delmarva Peninsula. And in, in fact, we didn't see any difference um, between areas that had been hit heavily by the hurricane and those that hadn't, um, which really says huge things about how resilient these ecosystems are and how, how much they can handle in terms of those sorts of things. But we did see change. We did measure change. In fact, we saw across that entire region, we saw a, a, a difference in what the plants looked like before and after the storm, but it had nothing to do with where the storm had been. We saw it everywhere. And what we saw was a signal of sea level rise. And it wasn't marshes moving into the upland. It wasn't um, the kind of conversion that, that Joe was trying to measure. What it was is that um, just like when you were paddling upstream and seeing the, the cranberries pop up as things get the fresher, there, there's community differences within the, the tidal marsh where there are, th are plants that are, are able to, to get inundated daily and plants that, that only get inundated a few times a month like the salt hay that you mentioned. And what we saw is that these, these, the salt hay was, w is disappearing and other species that are more water tolerant are moving in and taking their place. So the, the marshes across the northeast are getting wetter and, and they're getting wetter 
a in areas that that are experiencing more local uh, sea level rise, they're getting wetter faster. And so we are able to to not only see measurable changes within a single year, but the the strength of those changes was tightly tied to how fast sea level rise is happening there. So when it comes down to it, these marshes can, may be really robust to something that's incredibly destructive to human habitats, like Hurricane Sandy. But at the same time, they these these long slow changes um, can erode away at their edges and change the community composition of what kinds of, of critters we can find within them. So a uh, quick question for both of you. Which do you prefer, high marsh or low marsh? <laughs> well, I, it depends on what you want to do there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the birds that we study, they tend to forage or look for food a lot in the low marsh, and so it's fun to try and catch them there because uh, we capture them to track their survival over time. Uh, and they only nest in the high marsh area, um, which floods at least once a month typically in Maine. Um, so they've got this really cool breeding system where they can fit their entire nesting cycle between monthly high tides. Um, so since one of my favorite parts of the work we've done is finding nests because they're, they're very tricky, um, I would say the high marsh I prefer because that's where the nests are. Okay. Um, I want to get get back to the birds, but I do want to let our listeners know that we are taking calls for the remainder of the hour. You can reach us at 469-0500 or toll-free at 1-866-625-9378. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Um, you know, what kind... Co- what kind of birds live in the salt marsh? What kind of habitat does the salt marsh provide? People don't get out into the marshes, and so they may not even realize that there's birds nesting in those grasses. Yeah, so there's uh, there's there's a suite of species that use the salt marsh. Um, you know, some things that would be pretty familiar to people, like red-winged blackbirds and great blue herons and herring, uh, gulls. herring gulls and even crows and swallows uh, can actually get into huge numbers in some of the marshes foraging over the insect um, emergence that happened there. Um, but then there's another suite of, of bird species that are, are specialized to, to, to tidal marshes, and we really only see them there. And so those would be things like salt marsh sparrows, um, Nelson sparrows, uh, uh, clapper rails, although not in Maine, but certainly across the, the northeast, and um, seaside sparrows further south in, in southern New England and south from there, um, and then willets, as you mentioned in the in the, the earlier recording as well. And so, and these are species that that depend on the salt marsh, and they are species that if the salt marsh disappears or the salt marsh changes and it gets flooded more frequently, they're not going to be able to pull it off. Um, in fact, uh, uh, one of my uh, former PhD students, Mo Carell, um, has, as part of her dissertation, looked at a suite of, of over 20 species that, that use the marsh. And she characterized how much of their lives these species spend in the marsh. And what she found was that species that spend more of their time in the marsh, that are more dependent upon that resource, that that's where, where they call home, those species were declining at faster rates than those that only go in there to forage for a little bit. Or maybe they, they do put a nest in there, but there lots of their other individuals of their species have nests in other places. And so what really really seems it's, it's this entire community is screaming that the more dependent you are, um, the more likely you are to decline as why, things change. Why the declines? 
So what we really think harkens back a lot to what Kate had mentioned about that that nesting cycle is that all of these species, when they nest in the marsh, they nest on the ground, which in a wetland sounds like a really bad idea. (laughs) In a place that floods at least once a month, uh, you have to be very specialized to fit your whole breeding cycle between the monthly high tides, but a storm could come through and then there goes that window that you had. Um, And since there aren't trees or shrubs as commonly in the salt marsh, they're nesting just in the grasses, just a couple of centimeters off of the surface of the marsh. So is it changes in the tide levels or storms or? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, mean, that's, that's the weird thing about sea level rise is that a lot of people, when they think about sea level rise, they think about the, the, the place where the ocean is, slowly coming up inch by inch and you know foot by foot but really what it is is it's storms storms is the story because you know you can picture if you've you know spent time along the coast what where you saw the water highest in your life and say that oh that big storm back in in whatever year and i i remember it got all the way up to the put insert your favorite landmark and and what happens with sea level rise is that those things just become more common and what were rare events become common events and that's that's the story of sea level rise and so if we can zoom in to a particular marsh where there's a section of it that that historically has only gotten flooded maybe for a few days every month there's plenty of time for a bird to do what it needs to do in the time between but it does get flooded at that you know, that frequency. And as sea levels rise, it gets flooded more frequently at that exact same place. And so what was a a once a month event can become a once a week event. And now there's no longer the time to pull off breeding. So, and then that washes the nests away. Yeah. So how do they, how do the birds know where to nest? Well, that they nest on the surface of the high marsh. And so it is usually flood. There are very few nests, particularly in Maine, where they would avoid uh, getting flooded at the highest tide event. And it makes for very interesting field work because we know when that's happening because we can predict tides. And so our field crews go out knowing full well that this is the day we're going to find a bunch of flooded nests. And it's very sad. Um, and it also, you're thinking about it ahead of time, too, because we know, all right, it's three weeks to the high tide. Anything we find after today, it's not going to make it. And so what birds are these? What are we, all of them or what specific? It's all of them and okay. anything that nests on the surface. And do know. they like clear out the grass to the mud or do they use? They the- use the grasses, yes. Okay. They, um, all of them are pretty um, sneaky in their behavior and build very <laughs> camouflage nests. And so they build nests, bowls from the grasses and often under canopies of the sort of swirls of the high marsh grass that you mentioned. So they look for that. Spartina patens that salt marsh hay. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of their cue. But the problem is that that salt marsh hay is in decline. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the thing is that the, the as the same thing that all of the folks in the, the previous segment were talking about how these plants change over, it takes time for them to change over. And they're still there, even though they may be experiencing flooding conditions that will make it so that they don't set seed or they, they aren't able to grow robustly. And so from a bird's perspective, they say, ah, well, here's the sign that I know that this is a place where I can pull that off. And it's not true anymore because the flooding is happening more frequently in those locations. So do you have sites in eastern Maine? We do, yeah. We've got sites um, all the way up to the Canadian border. So, Can you talk a little bit specific things maybe going on in individual marshes? Well, I've done most of my work. I've dabbled a little bit closer to eastern Maine, doing some um, capturing of Nelson sparrows 
Um, there are another species that uh, are specialized to tidal marshes around here. Um, but most of the work I've done is in Scarborough Marsh, which uh, Joe Kelly mentioned. So one of the biggest marshes in Maine, uh, just south of Portland. And it's owned primarily by the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and, Wild- and Wildlife. Uh, and we've been doing a lot of work there where we were finding nests, capturing adults. Um, so we've been working with those populations in great detail since 2011, um, which has been really very interesting. We've got it gotten a great deal of very informative data. It's also been a lot of fun. You know, birds that were first seen as chicks have come back to breed as adults. Um, And on top of that, we've just gotten a lot of really valuable data that's helped us to figure out how well these populations are doing and how well or poorly, as the case may be, we expect them to do in the future. But there is there is a big difference in what marshes look like and what they feel like when you when you get east of Penobscot Bay. I mean that's a real um, uh, a real change and and you get these little small park pocket marshes like like it had been mentioned previously and it, and that, that turns turns out to be really really important for the birds as well. So when you are um, uh, south of Penobscot Bay, west and south of Penobscot Bay, the 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 dominant sparrow in the marshes is is the salt marsh sparrow. And when you get east of Penobscot Bay, it switches over to the Nelson sparrow. And so there's been a lot of work done by our research group, mainly led by Jen Walsh and Adrian Kovach out of the University of New Hampshire, that have shown that the, the way that these two birds view the landscape, one of them really feels at home in those larger estuarine marshes, the, 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 the ones that are more expansive, like Scarborough and, and marshes further to the south. And then the Nelson sparrow that's found more to the east is is found in these tiny pocket marshes and does great at small marshes upriver. And in the, the medium-sized marshes, you find both, and they actually hybridize. And so what's what we see on the landscape as how the, the, you know, the landscapes of Maine shift as you move east has actually been a strong force on, on, on shaping these, these birds' behavior, their habitat preferences, and what keeps them as separate species. Um, but it's, it's great to see. I, I love, I mean, Nelson sparrows pull off things in some really fun little pockets and and i mean i have lots of favorite little marshes but but uh just seeing where they can pull things off i I always like in fact the causeway to eastport um there's there's a little marsh on both sides it's pretty dry and there's nelson sparrows breeding right there and it's only you know a you know tens of yards wide and are they in high marsh grass yeah they're all in high marsh grasses as well yeah kate do you have little favorite places or stories i love the little marsh in lubeck um, in terms of eastern Maine. Uh, and it's just such a, a nice little marsh. And I think it's one of the younger ones around here, although Joe Kelly would know a lot more about that than I do. Um, and I just want to echo what Brian said. It's great to see birds breeding, singing, and just going about their business um, in really small marsh patches. Oh, you know, I love that little patch um, along 295 in Portland, too, right next to that park, which I think there have been salt marsh sparrows <laughs> detected in, and one. I think about <laughs> that one salt marsh sparrow that lives there every time I drive by. So how would the, you know, can people see these birds? What's a good way or a good time of year or a good place for people to witness these birds? I would well for salt marsh sparrows, which are a, a slightly better bet. Um, Southern Maine is where you should go, and and I'd suggest right near um, the site in Scarborough Marsh where we've done a lot of work. So there's actually an old rail trail that now is open to joggers and skiers in the winter, and it goes right through the marsh. Um, and you're it's there's marsh on both sides too. This is off of Pine Point Road, uh, off of Route One in Scarborough, and it's a big birding location. A lot of birders go out there, but they are tricky. They are a small brown bird that 
runs around in the grasses more than they fly. And they do have a somewhat showy call and they fly up and then make this call and glide down to the marsh grasses. But, you know, unless you're a birder, it is a little tricky. So I would recommend preparing before you go out. Uh, Many times my crew and I would be catching sparrows out in the marsh all morning and we get back to the trail and birders would ask us, have you seen any salt marsh sparrows? <laughs> They're there. They're just hard to find. And is this in the summer mostly? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, I would recommend uh, June. And particularly right after a high tide event, because since a lot of the nests flood during so the high So they're freaking tide out because their nests have been gone. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's more that the males are looking for mates. So the females lose a bunch of, the, they lose their nests. And so the females Oh, they'll are, nest again. Yes, they oh, re-nest. Okay. Yeah, I've caught some females off of three nests in the same season, uh, which is incredible uh, when you think about how much work that is, because the males for salt marsh bears don't contribute to any of the parental care. Uh, the females build the nest, they lay the eggs, incubate the eggs, feed the chicks, feed the chicks even after they leave the nest for at least a week. And the males, meanwhile, are just flying around trying to find other females to mate with. So after the vast majority of the females lose their nests at the monthly high tide event, uh, usually a few days after that, the male there's a lot more song uh, because males know that something's up and they're really on the lookout for more females to mate with because the females are are willing to mate at that point. So where do they go during high tide when their nests are getting washed out? Yeah, well, so, you know, if there's still vegetation on the marsh, even if the surface is completely covered with water, they'll just move up into the vegetation. Like hang out on a cattail or hang, something? Oh, yeah, if there is. So normally these 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 species are found where you wouldn't even have something that tall. So okay. we're really talking about hanging out on the very tippy tops of the patents, <laughs> okay. the salt marsh hay. Like their toes in the water. Their toes <laughs> in the water. Um, but uh, they will retreat back into the, the wood line at, if, if you have a, an, a high enough event that there's nothing to perch on out or there. Shrubs. Shrubs, they love shrubs. So, for instance, you know, on the, the Scarborough Marsh patch that Kate was talking about, you'd find them all along the eastern trail there in the shrubs that just waiting for the water to go back down. In fact, one of the ways that we catch them in the winter, so the species that are found here throughout Maine will winter down in the southeast Atlantic states. Um, salt marsh sparrow is actually kind of interesting that way. It's one of the very few migratory birds that we have in the United States that spends its – that. Every single individual is within the United States year-round. And so it's up here in the northeast during the summer months, and then it's down in the southeast during the winter months, but it never leaves. It's our responsibility. I mean, there's no other country to blame anything on. It's just <laughs> us. Um, but in the winter months, one of the ways that we catch them is just wait for high tide and put nets around the, the few bushes that are in the marsh, and then they all fly into the bushes, and then we catch them. <laughs> and then you release them. And then we release them, which is an important part, yes. <laughs> so a quick note to our listeners, we are taking calls if you've got questions about salt marshes or questions about birds that live in salt marshes or your local backyard marsh, um, we are here and taking your calls at 469-0500 or toll free at 1-866-625-9378. I want to get a little more of the changes that you've seen in Maine. So we talked a little bit about the storms are occurring more frequently, and so the birds are losing their nests more often, but they're used to use losing their nests. So, you know, a little more about what, how does that work? Are they just losing their nests in between these high tide cycles? And so it's more, you know, is it a stress response or what, what's happening? It, it's different every year because when the high tide falls each month relative to the breeding season varies every year because it shifts every year. And so um, some years the timing has been kind of convenient for the birds where it it just so happened that 
you know, they were gearing up to breed and the monthly high tide came through so that when they were ready, they were starting right after the high tide. And then in that way, they were sort of synchronized for most of the breeding season and it worked out very well. They had high success rates relative to what we've observed before. And then in other years, the timing has just been such that in late May when they're starting, it you know the high tide was coming through two weeks later and so it takes them longer to get synchronized and that's and and maybe there'll be a storm too unexpectedly so that it's been low success in those years so it's been very variable from year to year and you can you can guess based on when the monthly high tides are timed looking at the tide calendar in advance but at the end of the day you're not sure when a storm will come through so it's varied a great deal but basically when it comes down to it you know there's if you want to have a steady population if we want to have the same number of birds in our marshes, you know, decades from now as we have right now, the birds that are there need to produce enough young over their lifetime so that they can replace themselves. And, you know, it's not, it's not the end of, of, uh, the world if they have, if they lose a nest because they can make another one, but they need to be able to get out enough young each year so that they're, and then enough of those young need to survive migration, which is also a very dangerous time where a lot of birds are lost, so that they can return back to breed again. And so you have to produce enough young so that eventually one of those young can survive to produce enough young in the next generation. And if you put a bottleneck on that anywhere and you, you add a little bit of extra mortality and you're now, instead of only... 30% of your young making it to adulthood. Now it's 20% of your young making it to adulthood. That can spell the difference between a population that stays the same and a population that starts to decline generation after generation after generation until there aren't any there. So yeah, they have lots of really cool behaviors, adaptations to deal with with nest failure. But it really comes down to... um, can they produce enough young in enough time that they are able to replace themselves? Now, you you study evolutionary processes, right? I mean, I that's do. kind of your area of, of expertise. And so are they evolving to these changes that are happening? Yeah, so they're definitely evolving. Um, <laughs> it's just it's the, the question ends up being what is available for them to respond to. And so um, that's that's one of the tricky parts about evolution is that evolution only works with the variation that you have in hand. You, you can only play with the hand you're dealt and um, you play the, the best strategy that you can. But if uh, what is happening is is that your, your um, habitat is becoming a pond, and the only sorts of different uh, variants of, of genetic material you have, all of them are related to you being a bird and not being a fish, <laughs> then that doesn't leave a lot of room for evolution to work. Um, and and they, they have been really strongly um, selected for, you know, tens of thousands of years uh, to try and deal with these tides as much as possible. Um, so this renesting behavior that Kate was describing is uh, happens in lots of birds if you know the robins in your yard lose the lose a nest they will also build another one and and nest again but it usually takes them a week or two to go through that process of building a new nest and putting new eggs in it and these birds can pull it off in a few days and that that sort of 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 speed of renesting is is really unprecedented across songbirds and it's one of these signals that evolution has been working on these birds to really try and deal with this this tidal flux but it doesn't matter how fast you are if there's not enough time to to be able to to get things out before the next tide rolls in doesn't matter how fast you can renest if the window that is not 
flooded isn't going to be mm-hmm. open for at least the time it takes to successfully go from eggs to chicks that are ready to leave the nest. And bottom line is we can't necessarily bank on evolution. Um, uh, to echo what Brian said before, another member of our project, Mo Carell, estimated the populations of um, tidal marsh birds that we observed 15 years ago versus numbers that we observed in 2012. And in just such a small window, 15 years, there were sharp declines in salt marsh sparrows. And so it's not it's not a great insurance policy to hope that they'll evolve an adaptation that will allow them to um, nest successfully in an increasingly smaller and smaller window. You're listening to Coastal Conversations. We are talking with Brian Olson and Kate Ruskin from the University of Maine. We are talking about salt marshes. We've just spent some time talking about um, specific inhabitants, the Nelsons and salt marsh sparrow. Are there other birds um, that you're studying or other birds that you'd like to talk about today? We see a lot of different species in the marsh. Those are my favorites, at least, uh, (laughs) because they have just such a neat system. uh, And as I said, I love finding their nests, and it's quite a challenge. So that's one of my favorite parts of of it. I don't know, Brian, what's one of your favorite marsh birds? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's getting into um, ornithology and being a sparrow specialist. I have a strong uh, love of things that are small and brown and subtle. Why? Other people probably don't appreciate. (laughs) Um, You know, part of it is just, it, it's it's one of these things that that once you hold one of these birds in your hand, the the detail that you can see and the um, the intricacies of it, the feathers are I don't know it's just it's really it's 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 awe inspiring stuff and I mean I I did my PhD on a subspecies of sparrow that's only found in the mid Atlantic it's basically only in the Chesapeake and Delaware bays it's the coastal plain swamp sparrow and uh, I mean in terms of favorite birds or something like that I I feel like that has to be mine because if <laughs> it's not my favorite bird then it's not going to be anybody's favorite bird <laughs> um, but uh, it is. One, again, one of these uh, uh, bird species that has colonized the tidal marsh and then since the last glaciation in the last 20,000 years, um, it's broken off from other swamp sparrows and ha- it's, it's headed out on its own evolutionary track and it, it, it looks different and it behaves differently and it, it, um, it's, it's carved out this, this little lifestyle in tidal marshes that, that um, wouldn't work in other places. And uh, it's really, I mean, part of the, the fun and the interest that I have just in, in, in appreciating these birds is understanding what they're able to pull off and understanding that these are critters that live on land and they're, they're becoming aquatic. I mean, they are, you know, if the estuaries were there long enough, who knows what could happen. But this is the same, I mean, it's the same process that, you know, led uh, uh, horses back into, <laughs> horse-like things back into the oceans to become whales. I mean, we could have awesome sparrow whales or something. <laughs> I think both ends of the spectrum are just totally amazing about these species. You know, they're very adapted for tidal marshes, so they have these really cool ad- uh, behaviors. Uh, it always boggles my mind when I think about salt marsh sparrows who can nest up to three times in the same breeding season. An adult female usually weighs, I don't know, maybe 17 to 19 grams. And with every nest, she's laying three to five eggs that are each about two grams. So that's, you know, at least 10 grams per nest. And she might do that three times. So she's more than weighing her, laying her weight in eggs in one summer. And then on top of that, if the eggs hatch, then each of those chicks, up to five of them, goes from weighing two grams to 
13 grams in 10 days. And so that is a lot of insects for that female to go back and forth and grab uh, to feed these chicks and help them grow that much. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there even the most commonplace things are amazing. There's this one individual, because we put on these little numbered metal bands from the Fish and Wildlife Service to keep track of individuals. There's this bird that uh, he was recaptured, I guess, down in one of the Carolinas. And when I looked at his record, there was nothing notable. We'd never made a special note about him. It was just any other bird we'd caught there. And yet we'd caught him in three different years, so he'd flown tens of thousands of kilometers back and forth every year. And he was just any old individual. So we're getting close to the end of the show. I just wonder if um, either or both of you have either things that people can do about marshes. Um, You know, it's a little, we've presented some bad news, but also some really intriguing stories about um, the birds that live in marshes. So either things that people can do or places that they can get involved or learn more about your research. Mm -hmm. So the... I actually made a post about the story of that one totally unremarkable individual who uh, had flown uh, thousands of kilometers on our website, which is titlemarshbirds.org, and our Facebook page, which is should be you know facebook.com slash titlemarshbirds, or you can just search for the Salt Marsh Habitat and Avian Research Program. So we have lots of information about all of the members of our project, all of the um, research we've been doing, and some fun posts, too, about uh, individual birds like that one. We'll make sure to put links to those sites on the Sea Grant Coastal Conversations page. So I, I would say, too, just that there has been a bunch of downer talk, but one of the, the big things <laughs> that we, we do have marshes that where birds are not declining. And there's the, the number one difference between marshes where birds don't decline and marshes where birds are declining is whether or not there is a road or some sort of tidal restriction between them and the ocean. And so there, there are local ac- actions that might make very strong differences in whether marshes are able to maintain themselves in the face of sea level rise. So removing those restrictions. Or changing them in a way that allows the sediment from the sea to flow back up and deposit on top of the plants like like was described in that first segment. Any specific sites you can think of? Well, honestly, thinking about that Northeast Creek site when they were talking about how it would move in, there's a Route 3 is that the entire creek has to fl- flow under that to get up into that area. And so if we want uh, that to turn into salt marsh and to move upland, then we really need to do something about the way that the water flows in through that particular road. But there's, there's hundreds of examples, thousands of examples across the Northeast. Um, again, uh, we will put links to the information about salt marsh birds on the Maine Sea Grant Coastal Conversations website. And I will also put a link to the map of marsh migration that was referred to in the first half of the show, which was a pre recorded segment. So we had a hybrid show today. We've come to the end of Coastal Conversations and our show about salt marshes. I want to thank our guests for their time and good work. So thanks so much for joining us in the studio, Kate Ruskin and Brian Olson, and Misha Mitar, Jeremy Gabrielson, and Joseph Kelly, um, who talked with me in November. Thanks to Natalie Springle, your regular host for this show, and of course, all the listeners who spent time with us today. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. 
Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Katherine Schmidt, your host today for Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning and a wonderful weekend. Thank you.